Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, an online addiction counseling program, which, happily, is an alternative to 12-step programs. We help people with addictions to drugs and alcohol, but we also work with people with a whole range of other potentially addictive involvements, like sex, pornography, food, shopping, relationships, gambling, and technology. There is both the self-help version of the program and there's a coach-led version. Both are affordable. And if you can't or don't want to commit to paying money for something like this, we also have free resources at our website to help you find your way through something like an addiction or maybe to help you better understand how to help a loved one struggling with addiction. All of this can be found at our site, which is lifeprocessprogram.com. Beyond the program itself, uh, at our website, you'll find blogs, answers to frequently asked questions, videos, podcasts, and links to information that we highly recommend ourselves. Again, all of these things can be found at our website, lifeprocessprogram.com. And you can also engage with us on social media, whether that's Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Links to all of those things in the show notes. Today we're finishing up a four-part series on harm reduction. In the first three episodes of the series, I spoke with Dr. Stanton Peel. In episode one, Stanton offered a working definition of harm reduction, and we discussed the history of harm reduction and Stanton's involvement in its development and its unfolding into today's times. In episode two, we talked about the differences between harm reduction as we define it and utilize it at the Life Process Program versus a version of harm reduction that really says... Uh, that any addiction treatment which is not abstinence-based is harm reduction. In episode 3, the last episode, we talked about the important differences between life improvement and perfection. And by digging into that distinction, we were able to demonstrate that harm reduction is not a concept that's limited to the harms that come bundled with destructive drug use and addiction. It is a powerful tool that can be used across domains. In episode four, today's episode, I'm going to give you an excerpt of a conversation that I had, not with Dr. Peel, but with another very respected voice in the harm reduction community, a man named Will Godfrey. Will is the executive director and editor-in-chief of Filter Magazine. Filter is an online publication whose mission is to advocate through journalism for rational and compassionate approaches to drug use, drug policy, and human rights. Today, Will and I talk about his best definition of harm reduction and why he believes that it is a meaningful and practical concept. And I do take him at his word since he has created a career centered around the harm reduction concept. The excerpt that you're about to hear is taken from a a longer form conversation that I had with Will in another podcast I host called the Social Exchange Podcast. There's a link to that full conversation in the show notes. I hope that you've enjoyed all that we have to say about harm reduction in the past three episodes and then in this one. So, a month's worth of dialogue. And if you'd like to learn more, then visit our website at lifeprocessprogram.com. And now, for today, enjoy the last episode of our series on harm reduction. This one with my friend and colleague, Will Godfrey. I'm here with Will Godfrey. Will, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Zach. Pleasure to be here. Hey, as listeners will have already heard in the intro, you're the co-founder and editor and chief of Filter, an online magazine covering drug policy and harm reduction, and you're the executive director of the Influence Foundation, the nonprofit which embodies Filter magazine. Before we talk about both of those projects, maybe you could tell me a little bit about who you are, uh, how you got into journalism, and 
And what led you to spending so much time on the topic of drug policy and arm reduction? Well, thanks for asking. I had a, a slightly unconventional entry route, I suppose. Um, many years ago, um, back in the day, I had a job in the education department of a, a large Victorian prison in London called Pentonville. And while I was there teaching literacy classes, I had the opportunity to co-found and edit a magazine that was written by and for prisoners. And that was a wonderful experience, albeit we were working under heavy uh, censorship and in in difficult conditions. I often tell people that my first editorial team consisted of uh, gangsters and people convicted of a wide range of serious crimes. Um, but it was rather easier in some ways than working with New York journalists. <laughs> yeah. um, um, it was, you know, it was obviously a real eye opener in terms of discovering further and exploring the kinds of issues that we address at Filter, both in terms of the bad drug policies that saw so many people needlessly incarcerated and broke up families and sort of egregious and, and, and human rights abuses and terrible suffering, and also the fact that many of the people I was working with had um, very difficult backgrounds in terms of substance issues. So after working there and, and running that publication for several years, uh, and then moving over to the States, courtesy of an American wife, I um, sort of segued into working in online publications that, that covered issues around drugs, which had become increasingly important to me. Uh, I had a spell quite a long spell working at The Fix and eventually sort of worked my way up to being editor-in-chief there. I then had the opportunity to found a harm reduction-oriented publication called Substance.com and then another one called The Influence. And those were excellent experiences. I met some, obviously, living in New York, I met tons of people who were extremely admirable and, and influential in terms of the work that they were doing in this space. One of them early on was Ethan Nadelman, who I believe you've previously interviewed and, of course, long-time head of, of Drug Policy Alliance, who, who was one of those that, among many, that, that really energized my commitment to cover and indeed advocate in this space. After running those publications, which tried to pursue a harm reduction agenda, and, and I hope did, but were owned by companies in the rehab space, creating a natural tension and, and source of conflict and difficulty. I then, with some colleagues, resolved to try to do this mission, but to do it in a different way, in a way that was set up better to succeed. So we got together and, and we had help from so many people, our board members, and too many to name, but um, we formed our own nonprofit organization called the Influence Foundation. We embarked on fundraising and in uh, September of last year, we were able to, to actually launch to go live. And ever since then, we've been a, a daily publication, as you know, publishing a very diverse mix of um, articles, investigative reports, interviews, news items, um, original video and, and much else covering drug policy, harm reduction and many intersecting issues. So that's in a, in a nutshell how I got to here. You wanted a newer novel, perhaps better way to cover these issues. Talk about that better way. How does it compare to projects that you've worked on in the past and what's the improvement? Well, we are able to cover drugs in, in a way that we would see as the most realistic way, which is not focusing exclusively on, on addiction because working in the knowledge that while many people suffer severe problems related to their drug use, that the majority of people who use any substance do so non-problematically. And I think if you're covering any field realistically, you need to do so in a, in a proportionate way and one that doesn't focus 
purely on the the problems, uh, although they're very important and ways of reducing those problems are, are extremely important, but also focuses on the the full spectrum of of drug use whether it's sort of functional or or and indeed pleasurable to many people drugs and by drugs i always mean all the drugs in our lives whether it's illegal and highly stigmatized substances or, or legal ones like um, alcohol and nicotine or pharmaceutical drugs but drugs play all kinds of different roles in our lives and i would see them as as a kind of toolkit which can be used either wisely or unwisely um, safely or less safely and we don't come to our subject of drugs with preconceptions. And of course, one of the reasons that I've been able to stay so interested in, in covering this field for, for this long is that you can't really cover drugs without covering so many of the related issues, whether it's human rights abuses like mass incarceration and other criminal justice issues, whether it's issues of identity, race, gender, and so on that, that see different people treated very differently for the same kinds of behaviors or so it's kind of grown drugs is, is certainly our core but we don't have to put uh, drugs or drug names in every in every headline or, or even always explicitly uh, talk about drugs because there are so many different issues um, ranging from uh, addiction theory to sex, sex work to much much more that that are clearly uh, intersecting with our topic and, and so we can we can be broad as well as hopefully open-minded. Do you want Filter to be niche or do you think of it as a publication that should be accessible to anybody with any knowledge base who's curious about harm reduction? That's a good question and it, it sort of reflects a debate that we often have in our editorial team. On the one hand, we want to cover harm reduction as a, as a movement and to cover it for people who are already quite knowledgeable uh, about these subjects. We aim, of course, primarily at a lay audience, but we do have lots of um, clinicians and so on writing for us and, and I believe reading us. On the other hand, I don't think our mission could be satisfactorily fulfilled if we only spoke to the choir. And so one of my concerns is to make sure that while keeping our message on point, we also write articles and publish them that, that are capable of reaching out to people who don't already agree with us and, and, um, and being thought-provoking and, and, and challenging uh, of prejudices and, and preconceptions. And some of the most satisfying feedback I've had actually has been from people who don't uh, already agree with this about one issue or another, but have said that they found um, something that we published compelling and persuasive. And uh, that's a very important part of our job. What does harm reduction mean to you? That's a, a good question, but a very difficult one to answer. You, you can take it on lots of levels. You can take it on a very practical level, in which case it's a simple matter of, of common sense to do the thing that helps people the most, even if it's not the thing that, that comes instinctively to you. It's, it's like it says on the tin, to reduce harms. But I think, um, you know, more philosophically, it could be seen as, uh, I've heard it expressed as, as loving acceptance. It's working with people, to coin a phrase, where they're at and not imposing your values on theirs. So uh, when you think about all of the meaningless tropes and slogans that exist. For example, no child left behind. Well, you know, who's in favor of leaving children behind or support our troops? Is anybody really against the troops? What distinguishes the term harm reduction from those things? Why would it be insufficient to link those concepts and just say something like harm reduction? Yeah, does anybody, practically speaking, want to maximize harm? That's a good point. You can look at it as what 
what the words very literally mean and and is there anybody who doesn't say that it's a good idea to reduce harms but of course phrases take on more meaning than their than their most literal sense and you know in the in the US i think above any other country there is this very clear dominant philosophy among many that um, that abstinence from drugs is the best or only way to respond to problematic drug use or addiction. So harm reduction has come to mean, it's come to, to, to define a movement and an approach that says we're not going to dictate to you what we should do, but we are going to give you options to make the best possible choices and work with you whatever your choices are. So yes, on, on, on one level, of course, everybody wants to reduce harms. And it could be set as called meaningless. But I think it's, it's long since sort of gathered this extra sense that we are not going to impose a solution on you, we're going to work with you to find your best solution. Okay, that's a good answer. Because then it means that if you are somebody who's saying, I want what's best for you, and I'm going to tell you damn it, what is best for you? That's not harm reduction because that is not, as you say, meeting people where they are. And I would, um, come to their yes, I would, I, I would agree with that. Sorry to, to cut you Mm-mm, off, no, but um, I've, I've been developing a little um, anecdotal and completely unsupported uh, theory recently <laughs> that I, I find that more and more people I meet in the harm reduction world seem to be cat people rather than dog people. And I think that that fits rather well because you can't tell a cat what to do. You can't, in general, train a cat to behave in certain ways. You have to meet a cat where it's at and and provide it what it needs and hopefully make its life as good uh, as you can. But you can't impose your will on a cat or or train it in the way you would a dog. And that's a, a bit clumsy because I don't want to compare animals to people. But I think that there is something in there that harm reductionists might tend to be cat people. Brilliant. On the other hand... And, you know, I I agree wholeheartedly with the premise for everything that you do here. But just to play devil's advocate, if that's the case, is there a a disadvantage immediately just in terms of what we name something that somebody who decides not to practice what we're calling harm reduction is then assumed to be, you know, a proponent of harm? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's valid. I think that, as I was trying to express earlier, I don't think that there is a, a true schism between harm reductionists and abstinence in the in the sense that um, I think all harm reductionists see abstinence as one point on the spectrum of various approaches to problematic drug use. And, and likewise, many people whose mode of working is primarily to help people achieve abstinence are also pro-harm reduction. And I, and I, I think it's very important to emphasize that. So, yeah, there is a, there is a tendency to, to be suspicious, if you like, of the, quote, other side. And, and perhaps we're closer together than often people say. But at the same time, you know, I think that there is just a key element of harm reduction, which is genuine open-mindedness and, and a genuine desire not to impose uh, your values or solutions on, on anyone else, which I think is also uh, common to sort of good therapy. I want to just illuminate the tension around this concept for one more question's worth and then bring us back into home field advantage. I was, <laughs> I was talking to someone recently, and it, this interview made it on the cutting room floor per his request, but... It's a person who, you know, he's he's so invested in talking about the positive aspects of drug use, the benefits of drug use. I have accused, maybe isn't the right word, but I, I asked difficult questions to him about why not continue to acknowledge the negative aspects of drug use. Now, I think this person has gone a little bit too far. Let's say maybe drunk too much of the uh, drug positive 
Kool-Aid. Is there ever a worry that, or is that ever something you have to to be mindful of in editing with this publication that, that you don't go too far in that direction? Yes, of course. You know, I often find myself adding disclaimers and, and, and caveats to drug positive stories. I think uh, nobody thinks that addiction, substance use disorders, and of course, addiction can apply to many things other than substances. Um, but nobody thinks that it is good. Nobody des- denies that there are many drug related harms. And I've often been accused of promoting drug use. And that that's a charge I, I quite hotly deny. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm promoting uh, an end to the stigmatization of drug use, which I think is very important. And I'm also promoting awareness, I hope, that the harms of drugs are very often conflated with the harms of drug policy. For example, people who use heroin in heroin-assisted treatment programs can do so uh, very safely. That's a very different matter from using street heroin, particularly in recent years with the uh, advent of, of, her- of fentanyl, but, but always with the various adulterations and uncertain dosages and unsafe practices that are involved. And so uh, I think it's important when we're talking about drug harms, not to deny them, but also not to conflate them with harms that are very real for the people in practical circumstances, but that originate in policy uh, and not in the inherent properties of drugs. Good. I th- so I think we've covered pretty much all of the pushback, at least broadly speaking, that, that I get when I am an advocate for the concept or the term. I do want to ask, though, we were talking about this in an email exchange, and I was I asked you, is it ever the case that an organization or maybe a theory in and of itself claims to be harm reduction based when it clearly is not, you know, and is there a simple way to distinguish between one of these faux harm reduction models and a model embodied by, let's say, more pure harm reduction principles? Mm. There are certainly many organizations that operate by using some aspects of harm reduction, but not others. You know, for to name an easy example, some some elements of harm reduction are much easier for the the mainstream public to accept than others. Naloxone distribution, for example, has has really taken off because using um, a substance that doesn't have any harmful effects in order to save somebody's life, and it can visibly uh, just be done in a few minutes, uh, seems like a no-brainer, I think, to most people, and and was much more easily accepted, I believe, than something like uh, syringe exchange, where you know, for a lot of people, it's hard to get over the idea that you're giving out needles to people and facilitating drug use, even though the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that it reduces harms and saves lives. And when you come to safe consumption spaces, then people might have even more of a, of a problem with that. I think what you're alluding to here is, is a sort of a classic advocate's argument. Um, and it's one that we come up against all the time with things we publish, that you've got you know, some people who say we should be talking about the ideal uh, society and the ideal legislation that we ultimately want, and we shouldn't accept any compromises. We should just be pushing for that ultimate goal. And you've got some people who say we should be trying to improve the situation we're in. We should be working for incremental uh, changes. And if if something is, is better, for example, a, a reduction in sentencing for a particular drug offense that doesn't actually legalize that drug, well, we should take the uh, the incremental improvements a- as we go and, and keep working for more. And you often get a lot of conflict and disagreement between people on both ends of that harm reduction 
spectrum. And by the way, we publish work from from people who take broadly each of those positions. And um, I think one very good example is the LEAD program, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. Some people think this is certainly an improvement on what we had where people were automatically incarcerated and now people can be diverted to to treatment, to social workers, to healthcare, whatever it might be. And other people think, no, this is a coercive situation. The police are involved and it is wrong that the police are involved in, in the lives of people who are simply using drugs and we shouldn't accept it. So there's that tension. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a typical editor and sort of sit on the fence there and say that I don't think we necessarily have to choose between the two, that they are not necessarily mutually exclusive. It can simultaneously be true that we should be advocating and dreaming and taking part in action to bring about the ultimate changes to society uh, and the lives of people who use drugs that we want to see. And also at the same time, be working to take whatever we can get now, working within the framework of the reality that we live in now to make people's lives that little bit better with every opportunity that we can. And I I think that there are very effective advocates and activists on both ends of that spectrum and both categories of people um, can have a home in in writing for Filter, certainly. Do you or does Filter uh, take a position on the ways best to conceptualize addiction, for instance, Would you go as far as to say that you're a proponent of or an opponent of the disease model of addiction? I I think I can I can say and it's it's pretty obvious from what I've published and and sometimes written over the years that I personally am an opponent of the disease model addiction. That's not to say that we would never provide a platform to somebody who wanted to express themselves and, and, and perhaps be supportive of that model. But I think that any model that firstly portrays addiction as as kind of predetermined and inescapable uh, without one particular path to recovery is very problematic. And I think that any model that ignores the very powerful social and and social social psychological um, circumstances of people's lives in forming addiction uh, and addictive relationships with substances or other behaviors uh, i think any model that ignores that is very incomplete and and not a model that i personally would support 